I V M. Welcome to All Things Policy, a podcast on everything from employment to aircraft carriers. We are a bunch of policy nuts based in Namma, Bengaluru, and we like bringing fresh perspectives to Indian affairs and Indian perspectives to global affairs. I'm Manoj, a journalist, and I'm Shambhavi, a cell biologist. The Takshashila Institution offers 12-week online courses in public policy, technology policy, and defense and foreign affairs. The courses are ideal for both full-time students and working professionals. Admissions for the September 2019 batch are now open. Visit our website takshashila.org.in for more details. Hello and welcome to All Things Policy. I'm Manoj and today I have with me Pranav and Aditya and we are going to be bringing back our special Thursday episode which is Thoughtful Thursdays where we essentially talk about different papers that we've read or things that we are researching um and today again we've got a very interesting mix of things to talk about um from military posturing to the Iranian space program uh to how CPEC is helping conduct nation building in Pakistan so we're going to get into all of this first but before any of this i want to talk to pranav and ask him about the iranian space program uh and how it's developed and how far it's reached so pranav tell us uh so thank you manoj so the iranian space program many of them associate it with iran's uh, missile program and they wrongly say iran is building its rockets since building its uh, space rockets because it wants to have a better missile program unfortunately this is not true the iran space program goes much much before they even thought of having a missile program it goes back to 1967 when uh, sputnik was just launched and the whole thing about weaponization of space started and they were party to the outer space treaty and this was when they were uh, lobbying for the peaceful uses of space mm-hmm. and you had many of the telecommunications industry in which was very very nascent in iran which was lobbying for first they started lobbying for um, putting up their own telecommunication satellite and this was always seen as we need to connect the entire country together we need to bring the country together through telecommunication mm-hmm. and this was sort of the view and it and this ecosystem sort of grew around it so you had the ministry of telecommunications along with the local industries which over the years have very very strongly moved to create a coherent Iranian space program um, unfortunately the Iranian space program hasn't been going very well but the thing about how they got their missile squad or how they got their uh, first rocket squad interesting they did not intend to use a missile and turn it into a rocket mm-hmm. they had they had to acquire this missile from North Korea which is the Nodong one which is a modified version of the Scud B mm-hmm. missile and then they modified this and they first tried many launches first they have built a sounding rocket and finally in 2008 they were actually able to put a small payload the omad satellite and they were actually able to launch this okay but but you i remember you telling us that uh, that's not the first iranian satellite in space right the first one was with the russians yes the first one was launched with the russians and they launched it in 2005 and this was a very big deal for Iran because they really wanted a satellite for quite a long time the the ministry of telecommunications really really strongly lobbied for this mm-hmm. but how did they communicate before this how did they use telecom how did they use uh, satellites before this so they had to buy bandwidth space from international commercial operators for a very long time intersat was one of their uh, main suppliers 
after Trovoji years, there have been many other commercial players. So there were a long list of subscriptions, you can say, yeah. to international satellites. Okay. Uh, what I found very interesting is how the United States and, you know, some of the others who analyze this space look at Iran's space program as something that's very, very much connected to the military. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, that's not true at all. Uh, what I discovered was this was about putting satellites in order to help people, in order to have disaster relief, in order to have better remote sensing. And this was always the motivation for them. Mm. And it just happened to be that because of consequence that they weren't able to acquire the technology, Mm. they inadvertently had to buy a missile and then convert this. And eventually it somehow got entangled with the military program. So uh, I'm I'm not sure. uh, I mean, when we go back to say the 60s and the 70s, I'm not sure what the posture was at that point in time. I mean, at that point in time, I don't think the Americans would have had really any issues with the Iranian military also developing. Absolutely not. Um, it's, uh, this change is after the revolution in 79. But this notion that the program uh, began with civilian... So obviously all of these satellites, different satellites can have dual uses of course, remote sensing, uh, navigation whatever. You can have dual uses for each of these. But was from so the late 70s to the 80s and thereafter I can imagine the military having a dominant role because conventionally any of these programs, most of these programs around the world have been led by military development. I mean, India is a unique case in that sense, right? Because our program began with civilian purposes and then we've used it for military purposes. So in your sort of assessment, in your reading of things, was the 80s, 90s and leading into the 2000s, I mean, it's understandable that the military would be an intrinsic part of this to begin with, right? And therefore, military users would also be intrinsic to it. So definitely, the Shahab-3, which is a modified version of the Nodong missile, as I mentioned before, it was a road mobile missile which was had a range of 1,200 kilometers, and then they had to put up a stage and to elongate the stage, and then they may finally made a rocket out of this. The military aspect was still there. The military was always interested in developing this, but the Iran space agency is relatively new. Uh, it first came up in 2005. Unfortunately, since then, they haven't had many successful launches. They have about only four satellites. Mm-hmm. So they wanted to have many other satellites planned. So if you look at Iran's planned satellites, they have a large number of planned satellites than the number of satellites they've actually launched. Okay. So they've had many, many number of unsuccessful tests. And it's quite sad that they always mocked for this. Firstly, they have a technology, they are a denied technology. Hmm. And a lot of this has to be aided by the military space programs. Yeah. Yeah, Aditya. Yeah, what are the uh, military applications that people envision Iran's space program might have? So one of the things that they always say is that they can derive better rocketry here. They can derive, they can have silo-based liquid fuel launchers. Probably they can have, they can develop boosters for uh, medium and short-range ballistic missiles because obviously you have a scientific bureaucracy there who want only do experiments like any scientists they always want to do something that's related to science rather than the military mm-hmm. but you also have the Iranian Revolutionary Guard where who are getting more and more interested in these alternate technologies like cyber space weapons and so on yeah so, so obviously uh, they can turn rockets into missiles but yes. uh, what about satellites themselves So satellites themselves, there's quite a lot of speculation about them. There is uh, some concern that Iran might host non-state actor satellites. They might give bandwidth space to all of these. But given that right now it's so expensive for them to launch a satellite, and because they have so many other commitments, so many other commitments only for civilian purposes, which is in desperate need of, I don't think that at this stage they would go and apply military capability to this or they would go and give this satellite space to non-state actors because there is so much more requirement in the local area for disaster relief. Uh, they're very, very keen on 
connecting the entire country and having better resource management through space mapping your resources using uh, radars in space and so on and geo and and geo tracking and geo sensing is very important for all countries it's quite important even for iran and navigation as well so they have some plans for their navigation so at this stage i don't see them giving any space for these non state actors or even have a military application because they have so many other demands but probably in the future but that is something that every country with a space program should be concerned about india as well we know india tested in asat very recently every country with a rocket capability is also capable of creating an asat all right fascinating okay so while we are on military aditya what do you have for us Um, yeah, um, this is a paper from um, Journal of Strategic Studies in June. It's titled "Signals of Strength: Capability Demonstrations and Perceptions of Military Power," and this caught my eye because it seems to at least start to address puzzle that has been stuck in my mind for a while. You know, I read a lot of military history, and military history is not just uh, accounts of uh, major conflicts. A lot of it is what happens in the relative peacetime in between. Yeah. and uh, we seem to be in a sort of similar period today and uh, i don't th- i've not seen much systematic analysis of how militaries behave and how they convey their capabilities to each other i mean we at a in- instinctive level we know sure you conduct a missile test to show everybody okay this works or you show off something but this paper by evan montgomery uh, tries to systemize it i'm not very happy with the way he's done it but I'll, I'll, let me just talk about what he's done and what i i think what questions i think remain first he he says there are broadly three perspectives on the issue of military demonstration one is that you don't demonstrate that you keep things secret and there there are reasons to keep things secret hmm. if things are secret you can achieve operational s- surprise at a later date and you can prevent uh, an enemy from being warned and developing countermeasures the drawback is that it doesn't really add to your deterrence yeah uh, deterrence involves conveying a capability yeah. the other is simply swagger you know one reason traditional reason for traditionally cited reason for uh, military demonstration is to placate or impress a domestic audience yep. so you know big fancy parades that kind of. that trump now wants <laughs> yes exactly yeah. and the third is of course shows of force and when we talk about shows of force it's typically not about either operational capability or technology it's typically about showing resolve hmm. and a lot of uh, the literature on the subject is focused on crises hmm. so in a crisis you you show resolve by doing something so in doklam the indian army basically puts its soldiers in the way of the pla hmm. simply to say we are here get used to it yeah so so that's the third broad category but uh, he argues that an in- insufficient way of looking at this because uh, uh, while resolve is important uh, it can also change whereas military capabilities uh, take longer time to change and uh, military capabilities are not necessarily easy to gauge i mean you can you can you know you can do a sipri military balance sort of correlation of forces but yeah. that doesn't really tell you about the military power that yeah. a country has so he broadly categorizes these demonstrations of military capability in five categories uh, the first is employment which is that you actually use it use your military capability in small conflicts so the gulf war of 91 is an example he cites and you know Russia and China both i think really learned a lot or at, le- at least have taken lessons from that to heart he also cites Russia and Syria and how uh, what Russia has done in Syria in the last few years has shaped american perceptions of russian power yeah of course this can go wrong and the example that comes to my mind is the winter war of 1939 40 where uh, the soviets basically botched a uh, conflict with finland and that uh, Uh, that shaped the perceptions of both the uh, S- Soviet's future allies and their enemy Nazi Germany. 
So that can go wrong. Yeah. The second uh, category he cites is exercises, which is you know your regular military exercises. They are in a sense simulations of combat. They hone operational concepts and so on. The third is uh, experiments where you try out new technologies. You try out autonomous vehicles, yeah. maybe missile defenses. And uh, he argues that uh, there is more scope for error here because everybody knows you're developing something new hmm. and that you can learn from your mistakes. The fourth is what he calls examinations, which are basically testing proven capabilities or rather validating uh, proven capabilities. Most countries with nuclear weapons will uh, regularly test some missile or the other just mm. to prove to both themselves and to potential adversaries that their deterrent remains credible. Mm. And uh, the fifth, he argues, is simply exhibitions. We just touched on this, which is fancy military parades where which you use as an opportunity to unveil a new weapon. Now, finally, the challenge that he cites is that when tech starts going virtual, when it's no longer hardware, when it's cyber sabotage capabilities, and especially AI. Hmm. Doing these sort of demonstrations is very difficult, yeah. if not impossible. With cyber weapons, the way you could do that is by, by actual employment, but you actually use a cyber weapon, exactly. you make it relatively easy to attribute, or you use a cyber weapon against a third party. I'm sure that the Israeli-American use of the Stuxnet worm against um, uh, Iran hmm. has definitely shaped capability, shaped the perceptions of other countries. Yeah. But AI, on the other hand, uh, since AI is integrated into existing systems, it's a bit of a puzzle how you demonstrate that capability. I can only imagine that you do complex exercises where you use that AI and it becomes evident that these systems are yeah. functional and are able to generally in increase the reach and power of your armed forces. Yeah. So all this is well and good, and I think he does a good job of this, but there are things that stick in my mind. Uh, which don't seem to fit into any of these categories. You know, in 2017, a couple of interesting things happened. One is that North Koreans threatened to launch uh, ballistic missiles in the direction of Guam. And there was actually a debate in America, should we try and intercept it if mm. they do that? Now, thankfully, the North Koreans didn't do that, but it's interesting. What if the North Koreans had actually launched a missile? This is a test. And the Americans had intercepted it or failed to intercept it. You know, what would be the consequences of that? What category would that fall into? Yeah. Later that same year, sorry, later that same year, the North Koreans tested the Hwasong-15, which is an ICBM. And soon after the missile was launched, the North Koreans sent a barrage of missiles into the seas off the coast of the, Peren uh, off the, coast of the Korean Peninsula. And that seems to be a very clear indication to the North that they were monitoring the test and that they had the ability to hit yeah. um, a, a launch site in the future. And then there are just other incidents where countries prove try to prove operational capabilities to each other. In 2006, quite famously, uh, a Chinese Song-class submarine surfaced in the middle of an American carrier group. Yep. Uh, I don't know what the, these type of acts would fit into. Uh, you also had, of course, throughout the Cold War, you had sub nuclear submarines of both the Soviets and the Americans tracking each other, sometimes letting it know to the letting the other one know that they were being tracked. Yeah. And again, I don't know where these fit. Yeah. But I think that this is a, an interesting question that we really should be paying a lot more attention to yeah. and what consequences these have, what consequences they don't have, whether they're really effective. Yeah. Yeah. So I think this paper just gets me started on that. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. I think the kind of uh, perceptions that you can end up shaping or that you would want to shape and what ends up being perceived are also very complicated things, Absolutely, right? Because yeah. I might want to be conveying a certain message and the other side reads completely something else into it. Yeah. It could throw off my entire calculations. And the other point that you were talking about uh, on things like AI and all and 
what would constitute demonstration. Um, I think given the nature of uh, AI and given the fact that a lot of current military modernization in terms of this te technology being uh, employed is being led by private sector development. Um, perhaps, you know, when the Chinese do uh, those... Uh, multiple UAVs dancing in the sky kind of events which are just uh, for tourists ostensibly. Those are also signals that you're sending to people that, you know, look, this is the kind of capability that we're developing uh, and to assume that this will not be used in waters or in the air uh, is just, uh, you know, don't believe that because, yeah. you know, we're doing this. So, I mean, probably a lot of civilian demonstration uh, of capabilities will also signal the fact that this is where military development will also happen. So, what I find very interesting is some of these ambiguous demonstrations. More recently, in uh, just last week, the X-37B space drone, so it completed 719 days in orbit. That's the longest ever this plane has actually done. It's the only space drone that's actually ever done this. And the, it's operated by the US Air Force, but they always say this is an experimental plane, we carry out scientific experiments. That is a demonstration of a capability, but you don't know what kind of a capability it is. It's just so secretive. And this is not new. The Chinese have done this. So the Chinese had these satellites, which they said were experimental satellites. And what happened was you had one satellite opening up and a new smaller satellite exited out of it like, like a baby satellite. The Russians have done this also. The Russians have tailed a European communication satellite and... Uh, These rendezvous proximity operation type of satellites are very much fall into this category of ambiguous demonstrations, yes. right? Yes, uh, but I think what I find even more interesting is where journalists come in, uh, whether it's TV journalists or documentary makers or just newspapers. How this capability is demonstrated where you let somebody in and where you let a journalist in or somebody in and you say, this is what we're doing, this is what we're capable of. And I think the United States is sort of mastered this where they have Discovery Channel and all of these people they take them in and they say this is what DARPA is doing this is what the missiles are doing and they sort of leak some of this information to newspapers where they say oh we may pursue this capability we're doing experiments uh, in Doctor Strangelove you have this very funny uh, scene where he says where the Russian ambassador says our source was the New York Times and <laughs> yeah and I find that absolutely funny where you know journalists become a pathway for you to signal capability. We don't know how seriously they're taken, but it is very much possible where you leak information saying, we have this capability, we can do this, but it's still in development, we can't really talk about it. And I find that absolutely fascinating because I was trained as a journalist. Uh, fun fact is, Manoj was a journalist, uh, Aditya, you were a journalist, I'm trained as a journalist, so... That's, I think, that's quite funny also. Yeah, it's all our fault. Uh, but Manoj, are the Chinese slouches at this uh, themselves? I mean, uh, they've at least led a lot of people in the world to believe they have a rail gun, for example. Yeah, um, look, they've done so much of this. And, and you know, generally, you, if you ever speak to General Menon, you'll constantly hear him talk about things like the Chinese like to signal capability even before they have it. Um, and that's part of their sort of information psyops sort of thing. And they do this so, so frequently. I mean, this this emphasis on parades and constantly under Xi Jinping this has increased you've constantly had these parades and every parade there's a look out for what's being displayed and what that then in, implies um, their media talks about you know the next aircraft carrier having a different kind of catapult and all that. so they do they do a lot of this uh, because they see value in it um, obviously they know that they're still catching up 
to the US uh, and they're still far away from catching up to the US in terms of military modernization but this is as important as much as it might signal to the US that there is growing capacity here it is also important to signal to your peripheral states that look there's no point in even trying we've far eclipsed where you guys can even imagine competing with us so surrender submit kowtow um and that's what it's used for that's what it's used for so quite funnily uh, one georgetown university team an adjunct professor and a bunch of master students what they did was uh, they went through open sources from china and the conclusion they came up with was china while we think that they have a very small arsenal they have about 3000 nuclear weapons and we have done this based on our open source analysis we have looked at chinese tv shows and looked at what tunnel capability they have how they can launch missiles from tunnels so some sometimes people can take this way too seriously and they can take it to ex- the very extremes look people have to make careers <laughs> so let's not do that um okay so away from all of these very deeply disruptive conflict ridden things i'm going to talk about nation building and that too in pakistan um so there's a paper that i was reading uh, it was in the journal of contemporary china this paper is by zahid zahid shahab ahmed um and what the author is looking at is what is the impact of cpec on nation building in pakistan and obviously the defined nation building and state building separately nation building in the context of identity state state building in the context of uh, institutional capacity um and the sort of broad takeaway is this that uh, cpec has had certain negative impacts uh, and the biggest negative impact is of course the fact that uh, there has been a revival of some sort of ethno nationalist tendencies across the country um but also it's created this space because there is now so much at stake it's created a space for uh, different regions and different ethnicities to sort of come together regional governments to come together and try and figure out what how they can share the pieces of the pie better and that's broadly the argument and the argument is that if you can if the pakistani state working with beijing and so this is the biggest change take away that now you have an external actor which through just its economic engagement in a country is shaping state building and nation building which from a chinese point of view is also something completely new new they've uh, you know this notion of china will not interfere in internal affairs is completely out of the window particularly in pakistan um and this paper sort of highlights some of that uh, when it makes the argument that um, how cpec is examine uh, how cpec is impacting uh, political stability in pakistan the literature sort of talks about how cpec began and what was the objective how much of fdi has come into pakistan since then um and it's just because of uh, so some of the data points here are that you know by 2011 2012 fdi into pakistan had dipped down to like 0.8 billion dollars now it's back to about so by 2015 2016 was at about 2 and a half billion dollars so there was an uptake a lot of this was chinese when did this first conversations of cpec begin this is something that i did not know which is uh, and the, the the author quotes a former chinese uh, ambassador to pakistan saying that uh, 13 years ago which is mid 2000s president parvez musharraf had said uh, during a trip to china that they should be building uh, a china pakistan railway and oil and gas pipelines connecting china so this i didn't know that this is when the first seeds of this idea were planted and obviously by 2015 is when cpec was launched 
Um, the other interesting thing about this is when this author is talking about identity in Pakistan, and this is something that I did not know at all, which I'm really surprised about that I did not know this at all, is that the term Pakistan apparently is also an acronym, yeah. which I had no idea about. Uh, Punjab, Afghanistan, Punjab, Afghan, sorry, not Afghanistan, Punjab, Afghan, Kashmir, Sindh, and Tan for Baluchistan. The I is missing, which I believe they wanted to be India. Um, but I'm not sure about that. <laughs> but anyway, so that's uh, and it obviously then that highlights the fact that there are these ethnic divisions and uh, provinces are based on these ethnic lines. And then it talks about when CPEC was being implemented, how different ethnic groups and different political parties initially were critical of it because they saw it as being Punjabi dominated because Punjabis are the dominant ethnicity in Pakistan. And then how this negotiation began between these different uh, provincial uh, governments and leaders uh, who essentially lead different ethnic groups and how they started negotiating through first an all-party meeting and then subsequently through uh, structural mechanisms established by the central federal government. The two interesting data points in that process were in 2016, representatives or chief ministers from Khyber Pakhtunwa, uh, Gilgit Baltistan, uh, Sindh, uh, and all of these guys, they went to Beijing. And they went to Beijing to go and restructure the kind of projects that were being, uh, that had been announced. And that led to the change in the number of SEZs, um, which was quite a significant thing. So I'll just tell you here, the initial plan for SEZs was to set up eight in Khyber Pakhtunwa, seven in Punjab, Baluchistan, three in Sindh, and one each in Islamabad and Gilgit, Baltistan. This plan changed after the visit of chief ministers of all four provinces, which is KP, Punjab, uh, Baluchistan, Sindh. Uh, they went to Beijing in December 2016. Subsequently, the plan was changed with... Uh, uh, nine SEZs for each of the four provinces. Um, so it's also an indication of how Beijing started to engage with subnational actors and you know alter their plans. It was not just uh, engaging with the federal government in doing this. And you can see this also. You know, every day the current Chinese ambassador to Pakistan. Every other week, you will see him meeting with specific chief ministers and leaders from different parts of the country. You don't see that happening in India. You don't, don't see the Chinese ambassador to India going to meet uh, represented different chief ministers consistently. But that's what's happening in Pakistan. The other interesting point in this was that in 2017, when the first Belt and Road Forum was being held, um, all chief ministers of Pakistan traveled for that, except for Gilgit Baltistan. Uh, the chief minister was initially listed to travel. Uh, but then very quietly was dropped off and that was because uh, the speculation is that because they wanted to get India on board but unfo unfortunately for them the MEA issued that long statement which called out BRI. So yeah, so that's the broad thrust of the paper where she talks about the fact that there is this possibility of reorganizing resources a lot of the, and also addressing therefore some of these ethnic tensions that uh, dominate Pakistan's politics uh, and the fascinating thing is that this is now happening because of economic engagement by an external power. So in many ways, China, uh, without it sound, without it overtly being that way, is a colonial power that's reshaping the domestic dynamics of Pakistan. I mean, you could look at it that way, right? Now, uh, it's very impressive that they actually got together and cooperated rather than simply competed or squabbled for uh, yeah. the goods. But uh, is there evidence or does uh, the author address other instances where they have cooperated because of this, where, where China is not involved? Um, so no, the, uh, the author doesn't talk about other instances where they've uh, cooperated or not. And in fact, it, um, essentially in terms of even sort of this ethnic divide, um, the predominant strand that this article sort of takes is uh, the divide with the Punjabis and the rest. And also... Uh, the fact that the rest have wanted a preservation of their identity. And even an, an, as part of CPEC, you've seen uh, 
some of this play out where particularly in Baluchistan where uh, the threat from Baluch leaders has been about uh, look our land is rich of resources rich with resources and minerals and so on and so forth and you guys want to come and exploit our land and that and that strand is exists in Baluchistan and Khyber Pakhtunwa in Gilgit and Baltistan there has been a stand over we are these neglected people we are constantly going to be neglected and those are the kinds of strands that are independently available um, but when they sort of coalesce together uh, in terms of a national argument it's essentially against the Punjabi domination so that's broadly what the author talks about but the, uh, the author doesn't highlight uh, any other instances where uh, these guys potentially would have worked together um, the other thing that is mentioned is how the army is also trying to co-opt people from different parts of Pakistan yes, as yes. part of its uh, units so that you uh, end up creating a more quote-unquote harmonious environment yeah yeah interesting yep all right okay cool so with that uh, I think we're going to wrap and if you have any thoughts any feedback uh, on this conversation please do share them with us and if you've read something that, th that you think we should also be reading please do share that with us in the comment section thanks guys thank you thank you we'd love to hear what you think about this chat check us out at our twitter handle at Takshashila Inst on our Quora space all things policy for the latest analysis and research on technology strategy and economic affairs visit our website at takshashila.org.in and tune in for our next episode